You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 117. This week, I would like to thank Jacob and David for becoming the newest supporters of the podcast on Patreon over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Jacob and David now have access to special Patreon-exclusive episodes, like this series starting at the end of the month where we take an extreme deep dive into the evolution of military doctrine during the war. This episode, however, is our second on the Italian front of 1916, and this time we are headed back to our familiar stomping grounds, the Asanzo. Here, the Italians will launch two more attacks against the Austrian defenders. These attacks would be slightly different than those that had come before, because instead of attacking on the entire front, the Italians would be more focused, and for the sixth battle, that meant that the most important goal was the capture of Grisia. While this objective would be accomplished, the results would not be in any way decisive, and therefore the seventh battle would be launched shortly after the sixth ended. The seventh battle would be focused on trying to once again push the Austrians off the Carso Plateau. This attack will be even just as successful as all of the previous Italian attempts to capture the plateau, which basically means it wasn't successful at all. Before we get to the sixth battle, there will be another action that we will talk about involving an Austrian gas attack. Borievic spent the first half of 1916 strengthening his defenses, especially after so many men were taken from him for the Trentino offensive. However, his command was not entirely idle, and he was ordered to launch some minor attacks to try and keep the Italians from moving troops to meet the other attack that the Austrians were launching. One of these attacks would be a gas attack. Gas was a tricky thing to use in the Asanzo River Valley, due to the wind conditions that could change at a moment's notice. However, it was hoped that if the gas was used on a day with as little wind as possible, the Austrians could use their higher elevation to their advantage. The goal would be to release heavier-than-air gas above the Italian lines, and then let it float down the mountains onto the Italians. 
The conditions for this type of attack were available on June the 29th, and on that day 3,000 cylinders of a mix of chlorine and phosgene gas was released. The heavy clouds slid down the mountain and onto the Italian positions, and since it was, this was the first use of gas in this theater, it caught the Italians completely by surprise. The Italian infantry did not have modern gas masks, and were therefore completely unprepared. Here is Mark Thompson from his book, The White War. Quote, the men keeled over, gasping, glassy-eyed, foaming at the mouth, and died clutching their stomachs. Primitive gas masks, cotton wool pads impregnated with alkaline solution, and separate goggles had been distributed not long before, but many soldiers thought the precaution was needless. Their masks were soon lost or damaged, end quote. This attack would cost the Austrians just 1,500 men, and it inflicted 7,000 casualties on the Italians. However, it was not something that they could easily reproduce in the future, and that makes it much like the German attack at Second Ypres. They had used gas to gain an advantage for an attack without any real goals, and because of that they were unable to push the attack forward when it was more successful than they thought it would be. Now the Italians would be more prepared for a similar attack in the future, so they couldn't just do it all over again later. While the Austrians had spent the winter bolstering their defenses, the Italians had also not been idle. A great example of this was the work done by the 4th Division on Mount Sabatino. They had created a much denser set of trenches with tunnels and caverns as well. They did this by working at night, and due to the secrecy, they were able to move the lines very close together, close enough that the Austrians would have very little warning for the next attack. These types of small-scale preparations were combined with strategic moves by Cadorna, and over the course of July, he moved thousands of troops back from the Trentino front. This represented most of the troops that had been taken from the Asanzo to meet that Austrian attack, and they were now back in position and ready to launch for the next Italian effort. These troops were also much better armed than the Italian troops of previous years. They had many more machine guns, trench mortars, and most importantly, heavy artillery. Cadorna was ready to use these men for another attack. However, after so many previous failures, he was altering his approach and adjusting his expectations. Instead of trying to attack on an entire front and punch through on that massive width with the goal of beginning an Austrian collapse that would probably only end in Vienna, he was instead aiming only to capture the town of Gorizia. This meant that they would also have to capture Mount Sabatino, Aslavia, Podgora, all of which had been the site of previous fighting. However, all of the Italian strength would be focused just on these objectives, or the area immediately around them. This was most important in artillery. The attack would be under the command of General Capello, with Colonel Baidorio creating detailed plans. In continuing our mission to call out those that we meet along the way that will play a role in World War II, Baidorio would become the head of the Italian army during World War II. He would reorganize the artillery on the Asanzo, so that communication was better between the infantry and artillery. Madorio would also make sure that fresh regiments were right behind the initial attack troops to try and keep the attacks going, and also to make sure that the ever-present Austrian counterattacks did not constantly push the Italians off of their gains. Finally, he organized a mobile response team of 18 cavalry squadrons and four bicycle battalions that could quickly move wherever they were needed. On the Austrian side, with so many of his best troops moved away from his command, Borivik was in a tough spot. 
He would only have about 18,000 troops in front of Gorizia, and this meant that in some specific sectors of the front, the Austrians would be outnumbered up to 12 to 1, a staggering disadvantage. Borivik had also misread the situation and believed that the Italian attack would fall further south. This had been caused by an Italian diversionary attack in early May on the southern Carso. Because of this misestimation, Borivik would send a considerable portion of his reserves to the southern end of the front to try and guard the direct route to Trieste. When the attack would begin, these troops would take at least a few days to return, a very critical few days. The bombardment would begin on August 6th, and it would involve 900 guns. They would put a greater level of emphasis on specific battlefield features, like the Austrian trenches, machine gun nests, and artillery positions, instead of spreading their fire out over a larger area. A good portion of the fire would fall on the 58th Dalmatian Division, in its positions in front of Gorizia. The bombardment would go on for four hours before the Italian infantry went forward, and when they did, there was little that the Austrian artillery would be able to do to answer. What artillery the Austrians had available, and there was never enough, were low on ammunition reserves, and even if they had that ammunition, they would not have been able to figure out where to fire. The Austrian lines were now covered in smoke, communications were wrecked, and the forward observation posts had been mostly destroyed. This meant that the Austrian officers and artillerymen had no idea what was happening in the forward trenches, or when to fire at specific locations. At 4 p.m., the first waves of attacks began on Mount Sabatino. 200 guns had been focused on the summit, where just one battalion of Austrians were in their defensive positions. The defenders had been mostly killed, their machine gun posts destroyed, and their dugouts caved in. And while this destruction was bad enough, the Italian infantry were also properly coordinating with their artillery. In previous battles, there had often been long pauses between the artillery fire and the infantry attacking, which gave the often outnumbered Austrian defenders time to man their positions and prepare. However, in this case, there was almost no delay, and as a result, the summit was captured in just 38 minutes. Once the summit was captured, fresh units were brought in to dig in and defend their gains. This meant that even if the Austrians could have launched a counterattack, it probably would not have been successful. Once the defensive considerations were taken care of, more troops were sent forward to hit the Austrians just as they were trying to organize for one of those counterattacks. To the south of Sabatino, the Italians were once again attacking Podgora and Oslavia, and they were proving to be just as difficult to capture as they were in previous attempts. However, with other Austrian positions falling, both on Sabatino to the north and San Michel to the south, the Austrian troops soon found themselves in an untenable position, with mounting pressure from in front and no support from the flanks. Eventually, they would be overwhelmed, and once they were, the Italians along the front found their way to the Asanzo almost clear of opposition. Conversations would soon begin in Austrian command about what to do about their troops on the west side of the river. But before we discuss that, though, let's talk about what was happening on the southern end of the front around Mount Saint-Michel. Mount Saint-Michel had not seen a major attack since the Fourth Battle. However, since the very start of the war, it had been a constant bastion of Austrian strength. This would be the southernmost objective for this attack, and it would have 500 guns dedicated to destroying the defending positions on the slopes and summit. Here, the the bombardment would go on for almost 9 hours, before the attack went forward at 4 p.m. 
Much like on Sabatino, here the artillery and infantry coordination was much better than in previous attempts, and it would take just two hours for the Italians to capture the summit. This is an almost anticlimactic end to the story of Mount Saint-Michel, an area of the front that we have spent so long discussing. The Italians had lost at least 110,000 men over the course of 14 months trying to capture this one mountain, and now they had done it. Later that night, the Austrians would try to launch a counterattack. However, this attack was launched by exhausted and outnumbered Hungarians who never really had a chance. What reinforcements Borivik had were sent north to Sabatino, and there was simply nothing left to help out the troops on Saint-Michel. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. In less than a day, the Austrian positions all along the central front to the west of Gorizia had been critically compromised. Sabotino had been critical for this area of the front, and with it now in Italian hands, 15 kilometers of the front began to fall apart. The Austrian artillery was nearly out of ammunition, and after the failures of the first set of counterattacks, there was almost no local reserves that Boriva could call upon to launch any more. All along the Assanzo front, the sectors had already been mined for reinforcements, and now they were defended by what were essentially skeleton crews. Borivik just simply couldn't rob any more men from other places. Austrian high command did send six battalions of Ukrainians and Romanians, and a message that any voluntary withdrawal was strictly out of the question. These troops were sent to the north of Sabatino to try and launch an attack to recapture the critical summit. The attack was launched in darkness, and it was a desperate move right from the start. The troops were both outnumbered and heavily outgunned, and the attack was a complete failure. Shortly after midnight, the commander of the 58th Division, General Zedler, would inform Borivik that the situation was untenable, and he would have to fall back across the river. This retreat was ordered, and as many units as possible were moved over the river in the darkness. 
Only about 5,000 men would make it across of the 18,000 that had started the battle. The initial plan was to then try and hold the line at the river, but even this proved to be impossible. Ziedler and Borivik both believed that they had to pull back to a defensive line two miles from the river, but this would mean giving up Gorizia to the Italians, which had been strictly forbidden. However, during the morning, a battalion of Italian troops waded across the river, and by the end of the day, there was a major bridgehead across the river. With this bridgehead, the Austrians are forced back to their defensive line, saving Borivik from having to make a decision for a voluntary withdrawal. Simply too much had been asked of the 58th Division. So many times they had been able to stop the Italians against massive odds. So many desperate counterattacks had been successful. But this time, it just didn't work out. Because of this failure, Gorizia was now in Italian hands. With Gorizia captured, there were other adjustments that also had to be made. There was now no further point in launching attacks on San Michel, since even if they were successful, the troops could easily be cut off. Borivik ordered that artillery and then infantry be transferred to the eastern side of San Michel on the 9th. The Italian infantry did not initially know that they were retreating, which meant that by the time they realized what was happening, there was nothing but empty space in front of them. The Austrians were already safely in their next set of defensive positions. While the Austrians handled their withdrawals extremely well during the battle, we also have to discuss the Italian response. When the Italians pushed across the river, Capello alerted his commander, who then notified Cadorna that it would be possible to continue chasing the Austrians all the way to the next defensive line, perhaps past it. While this part of the plan was completed, when it came time to execute the next phase of the attack, which would have been the moment of launching another attack directly against the shattered Austrian troops in their defensive lines, and remember, these Austrian troops had lost two-thirds of their number, instead of ordering this attack, Cadorna altered his plans. He moved strength to the flanks in preparation for attacks on those flanks before launching an attack directly into the Austrian positions. The defenses found on these flanks were less affected by the earlier bombardments, and on August 12th, when the attacks were launched, they were almost complete failures. These attacks had taken three days to organize, plan, and launch, and those three days were critical for the Austrians, since every day of delay allowed more troops to be brought in and the defenses that they were in to be improved just a little bit more. With the failures of August 12th, Cadorna had no choice but to halt all attacks on August 17th. Over the course of the battle, the Austrians had lost 50,000 men, the Italians close to 100,000. While these losses were severe on both sides, for perhaps the first time on the Asanzo, there were actually gains and losses, measured not in feet or meters, but in kilometers. On the 24-kilometer front, the Austrians had been driven back between 4 and 6 kilometers. Cadorna was able to claim that this was a great victory. They had, after all, captured Gorizia. However, looking back, it is obvious that the, more, the move to attack on the flanks gave the Austrians three critical days to recover from the initial assault. If they were not given this time, the Italians may have been able to push them even further back. As the situation was, the line had moved, which was a tactical victory, but the strategic situation remained the same, and this would cause yet another attack just a few months later. Cadorna knew as soon as the line settled down after the sixth battle that the strategic situation was not altered. Therefore, he began to look at where his next attack should fall. 
By mid-1916, the Italian war industry was really kicking into high gear, meaning that Cadorna was able to rebuild and restock his forces much quicker than the previous year. He was able to use this ability to target the beginning of September for his next major effort, which would focus on the Carso. The goal was to take the Austrian positions on the plateau, which would then open the way to Trieste for a future attack. There would also be an attack on Mount Ramban in the north. The first week of September would bring heavy rain, which would delay the start of the attack until the second week of the month. However, even with this delay, the goals for the attack remained unchanged. While the Italian situation had gotten better, this was matched on the Austrian side. Before the sixth battle, the constant successful defenses had lured Vienna into complacency that they then paid for with the loss of Gorizia. After the battle, things began to change. Conrad was now forced to listen to Borivik's constant appeals for reinforcements, and before the seventh battle, substantial reinforcements of both artillery and infantry would arrive. There would be almost 40,000 men, including 20,000 Russian prisoners of war, that were detailed just to do construction work. This allowed the Austrian positions to be improved to a point that had not been previously seen. Trenches and redoubts were deeper, machine gun posts were stronger, and barbed wire was massed in unheard of quantities. These defenses would present would be present on the Carso, along with munitions and supply dumps that were built into the rocks with concrete and steel to reinforce them. The Italians did not have any good information about what was happening, and when they would attack, they found their Austrian enemy was in a far better position, both in terms of their defenses and the number of men inside them, than they thought possible. Even though the weather would delay the start of the attack, Cadorna would not postpone the start of the artillery fire. However, with the bad weather, accurate artillery fire was almost impossible. So for a week, the artillery fired, but they did so blind, and that was just about worthless at this stage in the war. When the skies cleared after three days, the Italians could finally see what they were shooting at, and the heavy batteries began to reduce the front lines of the Austrians to rubble. However, the Austrians were shifting their tactics, and had positioned only a few men in the front lines, which meant that their losses were light. Instead, the bulk of their defenders were safe in their fortifications behind the front, waiting for the attack to start so that they could counter it. The attack would begin in the early afternoon of September 14th. The Italian infantry left their trenches and began to move forward. There were 100,000 men on a front of just 8 kilometers, a much greater density than previous attacks. Throughout the previous week of artillery fire, the Austrian guns had remained silent until the moment of the attack, which was this moment. As the Italians moved out of their trenches, the Austrian gunners began their work. The Italians were moving forward in densely packed formations, wave after wave of them, and it turned into a shooting gallery. One Austrian artillery officer would say that it, quote, looked like an attempt at mass suicide, end quote. The Italians continued to move forward, but their numbers dwindled away. Those who made it to the enemy front line found them mostly deserted, and only shattered trenches filled with tear gases was all that they had to occupy. They were also covered by machine gun fire and rifle fire from Austrian defenders further back. The few that did manage to reach these lines would only be able to hold on for a little bit, until counterattacks quickly descended upon them to push them back. However, the majority of the attackers never even reached the Austrian positions, and instead were cut off in between the lines, or cut down, I guess would be a better way to put it. 
Even though the defense would be successful, it would cost Borivik a lot of troops, which was at least some consolation for the Italians. Cadorna would call off the attack on the Carso on the 17th, without any durable gains having been made. To the north, the attack on Mount Rambon would begin on September 16th. Here the Austrians were fully prepared for the attack, and instead of defending the front lines, the Austrian commanders pulled their men back to a secondary position to dodge the Italian artillery fire. Then they also allowed their own artillery fire to fire very close to the front trenches. As the Italians tried to push forward, they were under crippling fire from the infantry that had positioned themselves further up the mountain, and outside of Italian artillery range. The counterattack then drove the Italians back, or what was left of them, sort of a typical attack on the Asanzo up to this point in the war. Looking back on the 6th and 7th battles is in my mind quite interesting, because it shows very clearly the move and counter-move that typified the First World War, and what made it so difficult to make meaningful offensive gains. In the 6th battle, the Italians found that if they concentrated their forces, they could achieve true progress. But then the same strategy did not work during the 7th battle. On the Austrian side, the 6th battle taught them an important lesson. The Italians were not idiots, and they would not just keep doing the same thing over and over again, which meant that the Austrians needed to take the defenses on the Asanzo seriously again. They rectified this problem with the 7th battle, which swung the pendulum back in their favor, but the Italians didn't know that until they attacked and failed using the same techniques that worked during the 6th battle. So it's just this push and pull that went on for the entire war. I hope you will tune in next episode, as we will discuss the 8th battle, and then dive deep into the topics of morale and discipline in the Italian army during the war. (laughs) 